1993, the United States Congress passed the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the RFRA, designed to strengthen our God-given right to practice openly our faith. The bill won near unanimous support from both Democratic and Republican lawmakers, and it was signed into law by President Bill Clinton. For the next 10 years, the RFRA was celebrated by nearly everyone in America. But by the turn of the millennium, secularists in America began to discount the RFRA's religious protections. In response, various states began to pass state versions of the RFRA. By 2015, the hostility secularists feel towards religious freedom had reached such a pinnacle that when the state of Indiana proposed to pass an RFRA of its own, almost identical to the federal version, a firestorm broke out. Major corporations and sports teams threatened to withdraw business from Indiana. Bureaucrats and politicians around the country scolded the state. Celebrities condemned Indiana and governors of other states threatened to cut off official travel to Indiana. This time, the very same people who had once sponsored a Religious Freedom Restoration Act now vociferously opposed it. And most shocking of all, threats against Indiana came from progressive Christians. The Disciples of Christ denomination, once a part of the Churches of Christ, literally threatened to boycott the state of Indiana and relocate its activities if the state sought to protect the religious freedoms of Bible-believing Christians. I think it's a sign of how much resistance Christians now face in North America, that a nation that only 22 years ago thought that religious freedom was a First Amendment issue now finds itself with many bullies who are pushing back on the Christian faith. I've avoided using the word persecution in this series because it's such a big word. But the word persecution really only means to treat someone with hostility. And the truth is that in the United States of America, as secularism has become the majority viewpoint and Bible-believing Christianity has become a minority viewpoint, we find ourselves facing increasing hostility in the U.S. I know that some of you who are younger, as you've listened to this series, probably have a hard time seeing what I'm saying. That's not your fault. First of all, you haven't lived long enough to see how much things have changed. And second, you've probably been socialized, not due to your own fault, into the dominant secular narrative. So you may just not see it. I'm also aware that some of you live pretty busy lives, and you might hear bits of information here or disturbing sound and news there, but you may not have seen that it's part of an overall movement or an agenda. I hope I'm wrong about that, but I suspect I'm not. And some of you probably maybe lean a little bit more as Christians towards secularism. And for you, this is kind of just a whole lot of who shot John and you're eager for me to hurry up and get rid of this series and let's get on to something else. But what I want to say is that there does appear to be an emerging pattern in the U.S. where Christians are being silenced, fed disinformation, propaganda. We're being censored, at times being discriminated against. Increasingly, Christians are finding many of their institutions at risk. 
We're discovering that we're under threat of lawsuits at times or fi fines, perhaps losing our accreditation or our licenses, that these things are real and they're actually happening in the U.S. whether we see it regularly or not. So I started this series because I want to, now to use this term, inoculate you or vaccinate you against an aggressive secularism that appears to be muscling its way against Christians in North America. Now, I want to say that some of it is political and some of it is cultural, but as I've said before, for Christians at the end of the day, it's really a spiritual war. As Paul puts it when he writes to the Ephesians, I insist on this in the Lord, that you no longer live as pagans do in the futility of their thinking. And he describes secularism, and I just give you a quick definition. Secularism is simply an ideology without God. It's a deliberate ideology in the U.S. It is the dominant godless ideology in the U.S. And Paul says about it, it's futile. It's darkened in its understanding because it has deliberately separated itself from God and therefore has ignorance that comes when your hearts are hardened. And Paul says, the indicators of it, how will you know that those who are secularists will lose their sensitivity and give themselves over to sensuality and indulge every kind of sexual sin and be full of greed. And then Paul says to us Christians, that's not the way of life that you have learned. This increasingly godless secularism is now the majority viewpoint. Many of us are feeling it in our bones, even if we can't quite describe it. So let me talk today as plainly and bluntly as I know how to say the threat is here. Perhaps it will go away. Maybe a revival will sweep across the country. But if it doesn't, I want to say to you, you were baptized into Jesus Christ. So you made your mind up already that you're going to stand with Jesus no matter what happens. And that means at least the following. It means that when we are inundated with disinformation and propaganda, we will live by the truth. Jesus puts it this way. If you hold to my teaching, then you are my disciples. And then you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Christianity, this is a really important sentence. Christianity claims that there is no truth outside of Jesus. That's why we get in trouble with everybody because that's a big claim. You need to know, however, secularism makes the same claim about secularism. That is, secularists believe that there's no truth outside of secularism. And so it is inevitable that a war break out. It's inevitable because both of us are totalizing ideologies, Christians on the part of Jesus and secularists on the part of self. And in order to win, both sides promote their narratives. The narrative of secularism, however, according to Scripture, is untrue. And I want to point out to you that because it's untrue, secularism requires, it must put out disinformation and propaganda. And so we have myths, false histories, and pseudoscience. Words are constantly being redefined. There's a collectivization of all thought towards the secular ideology. There's a politicizing of everything in order to assert this dominant story in which we find ourselves. It's all over the place. Just this past week, 
when individuals gathered in the state of Pennsylvania to stand for life. The governor of the state of Pennsylvania came out and said, and I quote, this is just an anti-woman rally by another name. Abortion's a really good illustration of propaganda and disinformation. Think of it this way. If a woman intends to have a baby, you call it a baby. If a woman intends to kill the baby, you call it a fetus. It's propaganda. And to suggest that we don't know when life begins is to be as unscientific as one can possibly be. There's no doubt when life began. There's also no doubt whether or not that's a human inside the mother's womb. To suggest that he or she is not a human is to play the same kind of game that whites played 150 years ago when we doubted that blacks had souls. We were dehumanizing them so that we could oppress them. That's what's going on in the narrative today, and it has real-life consequences. So, on the very same day in 2019 that she introduced legislation designed to protect canker worms and gypsy moths, Virginia State Delegate Kathy Tran introduced legislation that would permit abortions right up to and including during the birthing process itself. It made the news because even pro-abortionists were bothered by it. It made it to the governor of the state of Virginia, himself an OBGYN, who said in a rather garbled statement that even after the baby's born, bureaucrats at the hospital and parents might decide it's best to go on and kill the little girl. All of this happens because people are buying into the propaganda, the disinformation. It's everywhere again. That's why every time a Christian acts out, it makes the news cycle endlessly. Meanwhile, most of you are probably unaware of the number of rapes occurring against Christians in Pakistan. Or how many buildings, how many church buildings have been destroyed in Egypt? I bet you don't know because it doesn't make our media. Or the fact that 3,600 Christians have been martyred in Nigeria just this year alone. You don't know that because it doesn't fit the narrative of secularism. Instead, we get all sorts of rewriting of words, disinformation, nowhere more obvious than in sex and gender, so that we're told that having a sec certain set of sexual desires now makes you a different kind of human, uh, maybe its own species. As I said in some presentation recently, I'm not heterosexual because I don't think there's such a thing as heterosexual. I don't think there's such a thing as homosexual. We're just humans who have desires. There's no such thing as a special species of people. In the same way, Waking up tomorrow and saying, I feel like a woman doesn't make me a woman. Having 50 genders on Facebook doesn't mean there are 50 genders in real life, which is why when the CDC counts COVID cases, it actually only counts two genders because even the CDC knows there are not 50 genders in America. CNN apparently doesn't know it because in March of 2021, a CNN report criticized the decision of the South Dakota governor to ban transgendered females from participating in girls' sports. The CNN report stated that, and I'm giving you a direct quote from a major news organization. 
quote, it's not possible to know a person's gender identity at birth, and there is no consensus criteria for assigning sex at birth, close quote. It's possible that CNN does not know that every single one of the 26 trillion cells in the body of a female ba baby has a double pair of chromosomes. It's also possible they've never seen under a diaper. Either way, such an astonishingly false, unscientific, and fake statement by a major news organization reveals to you that we're living in a world of propaganda. This disinformation is being fed to our children every day through the media, their cell phones, their friends, in some cases, though I don't think here in Middle Tennessee, in their school systems. A child in public school requires parental consent to take a Tylenol. But in many of our school districts around the world, they can receive condoms, birth control pills, even aborticides without parental consent or notification. And increasingly the risk is that our children will be given powerful gender-changing hormones without parental consent or notification. George Orwell wrote in his dystopic 1984 that you can look for a ministry of truth when civilization begins to crumble. They'll constantly be rewriting history. I remember when I was in the Soviet Union hearing that the future in the Soviet Union is fixed. Everybody knows what it'll look like. It's the past that's always being rewritten. And so we find ourselves with all kinds of euphemisms in America that at the end of the day are disinformation. Suddenly we find abortion called choice, reproductive rights. We have pregnant persons, Z, Zim, M's, ear, here, ears, elf, and the like. Simple words like man, woman, mother, father, they, he must all undergo constant redefinition to fit with the ideology. When you hear that language, you're being fed propaganda. And very real problems arise when we don't want the truth to be true. The great enemy of the truth, to quote John F. Kennedy, is not the lie, it's the myth. Persistent, persuasive, and unrealistic. I think it's not going to be easy for Christians to sort out the propaganda and the disinformation from the truth of God because it's all around us. But we can at least choose to do this. We can choose to say, I will live by truth. Alexander Solzhenitsyn survived the gulags of the Soviet Union where propaganda was an art form. And when he finally escaped and when he finally spoke in the U.S., he did say this, you may not be able to stop the propaganda, but you personally can choose to live not by lies. We follow Jesus. So we're going to live by the truth. Number two, when we are intimidated with shame and censorship, we must be committed to the gospel. The Apostle Paul says and lays down really a boundary for all of us. The Apostle Paul who went to jail and was eventually martyred for his faith, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I do believe that there is a shaming campaign against Christians and a censorship campaign now against Christians in the U.S. Maybe it's not as terrible as some of the incidents make it sound. But there's evidence that it's increasing. So we have, for example, Christians being thrown off social media accounts. And I, I would like to just say, as an aside, this is my opinion. You don't have to have this opinion. I actually believe that Facebook and Twitter and YouTube not only have the right, but I would like to protect their right to throw people off who disagree with them. 
because I like the First Amendment. If a private company wants to do that, I think they have the right to do it. Having said that, the fact that they keep doing it to Christians shows you they have a bias against us. So even though they have the right, which I support, I want those rights. It doesn't mean that they love us. In February of 2021, LifeSite News, a popular religious news website, was permanently banned for YouTube, who did not say exactly why, except that their Christian positions violate community standards. Meanwhile, you guys know horrible, vile, and anti-Christian channels not only remain on YouTube, but are openly promoted. Restored Hope Network Executive Director Ann Polk, Pastoral Counselor Joe Dallas, Attorney David Robinson, Attorney Joseph Nicolosi, all of them have had factual books supporting Christian views of sexuality banned from Amazon. Meanwhile, and I don't dare you to look this up, there are resources available on Amazon that are so vile that they're criminal and they're promoted on Amazon. Major professional organizations now ban Christian viewpoints in their literature and sometimes at their conventions. In 2012, neurosurgeon and humanitarian Ben Carson was in invited to speak at the commencement of Emory University. 150 university pro uh, professors signed a letter protesting the coming of Ben Carson because he stands for biblical creation. The Southern Poverty Law Center, which itself has been plagued with a variety of ethical issues, has placed several legitimate, honorable Christian organizations on its so-called hate list, which is used to marginalize those organizations. And even in the ridiculous, this appears, on April 4th of this year, April 4th, the American Booksellers Association announced that this past week would be Banned Books Week. It's the week in which the American Booksellers Association says we should not ban or censor anything in the U.S., but stand for the First Amendment. Two months later, they sent an apology out to all their people for the fact that they had on sale a book that was not transgender-friendly. Without a hint of self-awareness, they banned the offending book the week of banned book celebration. Censorship and shaming are major strategies of the dominant secular world. So after the Supreme Court's decision in 2015 to allow same-sex marriage in the U.S., dissenting Justice Samuel Alito gave this warning. He said, those of you who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper your thoughts in the recesses of your home. But if you repeat your views in public, you'll risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. Alito's prophecy is increasingly coming true. But you've been baptized. You were baptized. You confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so when you're intimidated or you're shamed, you've already made your decision. You're going to be committed to the gospel. Number three, in the face of discrimination, we must trust God and refuse to compromise. Here's how John puts it in 1 John 5. He says, love for God means keeping his commands. And remembering his commands are not burdens. And remembering that those who keep his commands overcome the world, that our faith will be our Victory In 1996, the state of California passed Proposition 209, 
Proposition 209 bans discrimination against persons in public employment on the basis of race, sex, color, ethnicity, or national origin. Sounds like a great proposition to me. But only 24 years later, secular groups in California sought to pass Proposition 16. What is it? Proposition 16 cancels Proposition 209 and allows discrimination in the state of California. Ask yourself, why would secularists suddenly want to overturn bans on discrimination? And the answer is because they want to discriminate now in the state of California. In fact, discrimination is common against Christians around the world. A Pew Research study that came out only two years ago, indicates that Christians are the single most harassed religious group in the world, including in the United States. A study in 2014 published by Christianity Today warns that if you put one single Christian word on your job application, you have a 40% less chance of getting that job than if you had not put that word on there. Guidance counselors at our high schools now have to tell our high school students, don't post on your private social media accounts what you do at church because there are universities who will look at your media accounts and when they see you're an active Christian, you won't be admitted to that university. These are rather commonly, um, these are rather common occurrences now. Think about it. Stories abound of employees being advised to keep their faith to themselves. High school valedictorians advised not to mention their Christian faith. Public buildings that are available to a variety of groups, but not churches. The same time that the mayor of New York City ordered churches to be closed and threatened to arrest people who went to church, the same days he encouraged massive protests in the streets and personally joined them, showing a discriminatory outlook against Christians. And there are signs that it's about to get worse. The so-called Equality Act so broadly defines a place of public accommodation and explicitly says religious exemptions will not be honored, that Christian organizations such as Christian schools and universities, Christian missions, Christian ministries are likely to find ourselves tied up in litigation for years to come. That's the intent of the law not a side effect. And so Christians are going to have to make very difficult decisions. We might find ourselves locked out of certain careers. We might find ourselves not receiving promotions. Already those of you who work for major corporations, you already know that you don't want to post some things on Facebook because you don't want your employer to see it. Christian things. And it will only increase. If a Christian school fails to hire a pansexual person, it could find itself in court facing a discrimination lawsuit. If a Christian nonprofit refuses to offer adoptions to genderqueer persons or any of the other 50, 50 genders listed in internet sites, it could lose its license. If a Christian church offers to rent its building to heterosexual couples for weddings, but not to homosexual couples for weddings, it will face lawsuits. This is exactly what the Equality Act is designed to accomplish. So several years ago, social researcher George Yancey conducted research on religious bias in academia and found that almost half of all universities are less willing to hire a candidate that they know to be a Christian than those who are not. I want to say again, it makes sense. It makes sense. We believe that there's no truth outside of Jesus. That's a threat to everybody else. It ought to be a threat to everybody else. 
And secularists believe there's no truth outside of secularism. It's going to be a war. And we have to learn to fight spiritually. And so I remind you, faith will be your victory. You were baptized. You were baptized. You already made up your mind where you're going to stand if things get rough. You already decided. So there's no equivocation at this point. We trust that God will take care of us and we refuse to compromise. And finally, when threatened with suits, fines, coercion, and firings, we will obey God rather than man. In Jerusalem, it became illegal to preach Jesus shortly after his resurrection and ascension. The apostles went out and did what all Christians have to do, which is disobey any law that tells you you can't talk about Jesus. They were arrested. They were hauled into the highest Jewish court. The highest justice on the highest Jewish court said to them, we told you to stop preaching Jesus. And Peter gives the answer really for all time for all of us. We're going to obey God and not you. Secularism is dead serious about coercing us into accepting its ethics. Already there are threats of suits, delicensing, deplatforming. In 2014, the American Counseling Association adopted a rule that requires counselors to counsel married same-sex couples even if it violates the counselor's religion. To fail to do so is to lose your license and your career. In 1999, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission took the Christian school, Hosanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran School, to court because the school had fired a teacher who disagreed with the religious convictions of the school at a religious school. The U.S. Justice Department sided against the school, arguing that a Christian school does not have the right to expect Christian teachers to uphold Christian teachings. Christian Counseling and Family Services have in certain states been forced to post referrals on their wall to abortion clinics. Hospitals have been threatened over their refusal to perform certain surgical procedures that violate Christian hospital standards. Christian pharmacists and doctors may soon face the same kinds of threats. Already Christian student groups are being kicked off college campuses or told that they must allow as leaders people who disagree with or are opposed to their values. No other organizations are told that. No women's study group at any university in the U.S. is told that they must have a man as a president. And as public accommodation rules are expanded in secularism, we will just find ourselves under increasing threat of fines, lawsuits, and closures. I remind you that there were scores, scores of bakeries around Masterpiece Bakery of Jack Phillips' fame when he was sued. Those who asked the cake for the cake were not looking for a cake. There were 20 other bakeries within driving distance, within a mile or two. They were looking to destroy Jack Phillips. So who we are as Christians matters. And we need to remember that we were baptized. You were baptized. You already made up your mind whom you'll follow. You already drew a line in the sand and said, I'll follow Jesus and I obey God. If I have to make a choice, 
rather than men. Everything I've described is already happening in America, but secularism is growing. It is becoming a stronger majority, and Bible-believing Christianity is becoming more of a minority. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking a couple of things. Some of you are thinking to yourself, well, I can find all kinds of examples of Christians saying stupid things too on social media. And I just want you to know, me too. But the examples I've given you are not examples of stupid secular people saying stupid things. I've given you examples of CEOs, governors, mayors, presidents of the United States of America. I've given you examples of presidents of universities. I've given you examples of the most powerful people in the U.S. who are promoting this kind of ideology. These aren't odd people saying odd things. These are powerful people who are trying to push their own ideology. Some of you are also thinking to yourself, man, he sure has made a big deal out of this. To you, I say, I hope I have. I hope I was wrong. I hope one day we all look back on this series and laugh. I'll be the first to laugh and say, oh my goodness, we were terrified, weren't we? For nothing. I hope God sent such a powerful revival that this sermon series is obsolete and silly. But I've watched the trajectory now for 60 years, and I'm telling you, I see the direction it's headed. It may be a soft form of totalitarianism, but secularism is totalitarian. It just is. And that means we have to make our decisions. I'll put it in these language, this language. I advise you to prepare now. Some of us who stand for biblical principles will be booted from Vimeo, YouTube, and Facebook. Churches are already facing that for sermons just like this. Prepare yourself. You're already being called a hater if you believe what the Bible teaches, a bigot, a nationalist, or some other scare term. You're soon going to discover that some of your favorite artists or authors are unavailable on the big media accounts, Amazon and others, because they stand for biblical principles. Censorship for refusing to use language that violates your faith. You may have a hard time retaining your license or your accreditation if you don't toe the secular line. If you work for a Christian school, you can expect a serious harassment coming your way. Federal dollars will be tied to SOGI issues including federally-backed student loans, meaning that we're probably not far from the day where a Christian university cannot receive federal dollars and students who go to a Christian university can't receive a federally-backed student loan. We're headed that direction and may only be inches from that day. You already know that some of our own children have now switched sides and they don't simply say to you, I don't agree with you. They say, if you don't accept this, I'm cutting you off. It's already happening to us. It's already occurring. That we may already be finding ourselves the victim of this kind of harassment. And it does raise a question, what do we do? Well, that's the whole point of the sermon series. But let me remind you of two things. First, we're going to rejoice. That's what we're going to do. I preach nothing in hatred. We rejoice. First of all, because we get to participate in the sufferings of Jesus. And second, when he's revealed, 
We're going to see the glory of picking the right decisions. And then last, because we're blessed to have the Holy Spirit in us. And I just remind you, having the dominant culture rage against you is nothing new. For my dear, sweet black members, let me tell you, I know for you it's not new. You've had to live in a hostile culture for so many centuries. For a lot of us whites, it's new. But it's not really new, is it? All the way back to the days of David. Why do the nations conspire? Why do people plot? Why do the kings of earth rise up? Why do they band together and say, let's go out and break the chains and throw off the shackles? And I just want to remind you that the whole time secularism rages against Christians, you know what God is doing? He is laughing because God knows what we need to know. And that is Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And every knee, every corporate CEO, every college president, every legislator, every artist, every author, every opponent of Jesus Christ is going to bow down, put their knee in front of him and look up at him. And I guarantee you they'll be quivering when they say, you are Lord of all. And so the Lord just laughs. The point was driven home to me in such a beautiful way. Now, 30 years ago, in 1991, I was teaching part-time at Lipscomb University as well as at Vanderbilt University. Now, I want to tell you these were really part-time. It's, it would be a stretch to su- suggest I was anything other than just an instructor. Who was, they paid a little bit, too, to save the real professors from having to mess with the, those kids over there. But... At that time, I was going to the Smyrna Church Christ, and we received a letter from a man who had retained his Christian faith all those years through the Soviet Union, where Christianity was at times illegal, but always harassed. And he had a question. He said, if you guys would send four Bibles to my university, he was a university professor at a large university in Novosibirsk, Russia, a city of about two million people where they engineer and design and uh, manufacture MiG fighters. If you would send four Bibles, he said, I'll donate them to the library as educational material, which will get us around all the laws. And maybe some students will see a Bible because nobody here, including the library at a major university, has a copy of the Bible. Well, at that time, seven of us, including a very young Peter Patton, who's now an elder at North Boulevard and sitting right up here, who's changed his hair somehow through the years. We sent back a letter saying, hey, how about this? What if instead of sending you four Bibles, what if you let us come? We'll call David a professor. He'll visit your school and we'll bring with us 10,000 Bibles. He worked the system and somehow we actually were admitted into the city of Novosibirsk, Russia, where we planted a church in 1991. And I can't tell you how sweet it was to be able to preach to a room full thousands of Marxists and atheists and communists in the Soviet Union. 5,000 of our Bibles were confiscated. They never made it. We don't know where they are. Turned into cigarettes by somebody, I'm sure. But 5,000 got through. And I can't tell you the joy of standing on the streets of Novosibirsk, Russia, and handing out Bibles to people who had never seen a Bible in their lives because the secularism of the Soviet Union was far more hostile than the secularism of the U.S. And I can't tell you what it felt like to preach under statues of Vladimir Lenin, Karl Marx, and Engels, and others, Joseph Stalin, and to realize I'm preaching the gospel under these guys' images. By the way, a young David Young, 
with Yuri Anufriev, the Christian who had maintained his faith in the basement all those years. And as we were there, Yuri showed me something that I'm going to end with. He showed me a couple of my letters that I had sent him as we were preparing to go over to the Novosibirsk. They had been opened by the Soviet Postal Service. Because remember, over there, everything's censored as it's becoming here. Some folks had opened the letters I sent to him. They saw that these were Christian letters, and they had scrawled all sorts of nasty stuff on those letters about me, put it back in the envelope, and sent it on to Yuri. So he's showing me all this nasty stuff about me in these letters that we had sent to Yuri. And I said to him, oh, my goodness. I said, so they know I'm here. And Yuri said, oh, they've got KGB agents assigned to you right now. Your apartment is bugged. They know everything about you. I know that's true because at one of our benefits, you remember this, Pete and Cindy, we sat down and they had my biography there. I never sent them a biography. They knew all about us. They knew that Pete flew uh, Apache helicopters. They knew everything we had done. And I was just really unnerved by that when Yuri said to me the following. He said, yeah, they're watching everything you do. But you and I, David, and I'm quoting now, you and I know that one day the Soviet Union will be long gone and the reign of God will never end. Nine months later, the flag of the USSR was lowered over the Kremlin in Moscow, never to be raised again. And the Soviet Union collapsed under the weight of its sin and is in the dustbin of history. And last year was the most prolific year for Christianity in the history of the world. And that's because Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is invincible. And you need to stand with him. Let's stand up.